0: But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead is the gospel of the Lord this morning. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We're going to talk about this. This is certainly a very poignant passage, the words of Jesus here in this parable. This is known as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It occurs only here in the gospel, in Luke, in fact. Chapter 16, you will not find this in Matthew, Mark, and John. Um, Probably because the emphasis here in Luke, typically in Luke, the emphasis of Jesus is the radical reversal that God's kingdom entails. This parable is precisely about the radical reversals of the rich and of the poor in the kingdom of God. This is a very important message for all of us today. That's what the sermon is going to be about. How one you expect to be well off is not well off and one you expect to be poor is actually blessed in the kingdom of god and how this should affect our actions um, in our lives or you could say how it should affect the way we are christians our christianity so what is this parable all about um i think this parable is about jesus's stance on wealth Stance on status and the role of human action in life. Jesus here is engaging the religious leaders and teachers of the Bible. And we can see Luke chapter 15 verse 1 for a little bit of context where we see Jesus is engaging the religious leaders there. And he is telling them that just like in the Old Testament, hence Moses and the prophets, we are supposed to live a life for God, in service to God and not for our own wealth. Jesus is saying that always striving for status in society, or popularity, wherever you may be, striving for the American dream, having nice things, and oftentimes looking down on the needy people, or those who don't have what we have, this is the opposite of how God calls us to live. Things are, in fact, radically reversed in the kingdom of God. The rich are poor, and the poor are rich. Something else we learn by extension, not immediately in this parable, but important to it, is that the compassion of God, compassion, is actually the very heart of all of Scripture. Uh, Even the Scripture written before Jesus, Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets, which of course Jesus came to fulfill and not abolish, Matthew 5, 17. So, This parable is about Jesus' stance on wealth, status, the role of human action, and the role of human action in the midst of those two things, wealth and status. And what is Jesus' stance? It's of compassion. Compassion as the right action. That's why Jesus is trying to emphasize Moses and the prophets. We're going to get into all of that a little bit more. First, I want to give some background to the central issue of the radical reversal that we see going on in this parable. In the ancient world, specifically in Jesus' day and around where Jesus lived and traveled in Jerusalem and Galilee, most people believed that material blessing was a sign from God. They basically thought, and by the way, many of us still think this way today, that if you were a good and godly person, you would have lots of nice Things, Lots of nice stuff, lots of money, lots of friends, lots of nice stuff. But when we look at God's word, that's not exactly what God's word teaches. According to God's word, plain and simple, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Luke 12:15, the words of Jesus. In fact, Jesus even said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Luke 18, 24 and 25. And by the way, here Jesus is not talking about a camel gate, which never existed historically. So I want us to start at the beginning of our parable. There was a rich man. And in the next verse, we read that there was a poor man named Lazarus. Verses 19 and 20. Something is already happening here that is very important. Um, if we're reading carefully, we can begin to see something of what Jesus is already getting at. I want us all to notice this. Uh, the rich man, the rich man, he is not being named. The rich man is anonymous. The rich man, someone of standing, obviously, someone who people say Could have made a name for himself, being so rich. He's the one who's not being named. On the other hand, there's a poor man. And the poor man, he is the one with the name. There's an expression, poor man with nothing to his name. He's the one that has a name. His name is Lazarus. And in fact, he's the only person to ever be named in any parable. Do you know that? That's interesting. And it's not by accident. So... What we can learn here is that by naming Lazarus and by not naming the rich man, Jesus is simply saying that, well, there's a radical reversal going on here. It's all of what we've been talking about. Who is really blessed here? That's a bit of what Jesus is getting at. It's as Jesus said earlier in Luke chapter 9, verse 25. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit? Their very self or their very soul. The rich man, one could say, is losing his soul here in the course of the parable. He's not even named, but not the poor man. So, involving all this, I want to tell a story. Outward appearances can be very deceptive, can't they? A friend of mine recently introduced me to the wonderful world of estate sales. Estate sales. I guess my wife knows a bit about this. <laughs> uh, this is a bit of a confession on my part. For those of you who don't know, an estate sale is essentially a way of liquidating the belongings of a family or an estate when someone is in need of a way to sell items um, due to downsizing. It could be for the purpose of moving, divorce, bankruptcy, sometimes death. Well, in other words, it's basically a big old sale where you can find some really, really top dollar items at extremely low prices. It's an estate sale. Like I said, this is a confession. Uh, There was a point in my life, this is my darkest sin, I became sort of infatuated with the idea of estate sales. I became sort of uh, starry-eyed, thinking about filling my home with nice things, you know, slowly accumulating them over time. Uh, via the estate sale. This was actually quite a problem for me. But I eventually came to realize something in my quest. I came to realize that God worked to work in me through all this, and I realized that I should not be going out of my way and sort of spending all this time uh, just to acquire nice things. I can actually spend my time in better ways. You know, it sounds kind of simple, but honestly, when we get infatuated with ideas like that, It's kind of interesting how they take us over. Um, Upon reflection, how much less did I think about God, you know, when I was thinking about sale items instead? So I want to say with scripture, don't be like me. (laughs) Don't be like this. Do not fall for the trap and begin to believe that material blessings um, always constitute God's favor okay to say that. Um, do not start to lust after them like I did. I think this actually is a very serious mistake uh, that we Americans at large have been making uh, for a long, long time, and it's far past time. It needs to stop. Okay, if we continue in our parable, we read some more interesting things, don't we? Interesting parable. When the poor beggar dies we read about how the angel carries him to the side of none other than Father Abraham. Verse 22. What does that mean? What does it have to do with reversal in God's kingdom? This was very confusing to me. Uh, One thing I used to always ask was, why doesn't Jesus say here that Lazarus was carried into heaven? Heaven, right? Why is it Abraham's side? Or if you're looking at older Bible translations, you'll read Abraham's bosom. Well, it turns out that during Old Testament times and places when great fathers like Abraham died and were buried, it was customary for the family to be buried with him. Nothing out of the ordinary there. Folks were buried with their fathers. Uh, actually, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 30 and following, we can read about this. We can read about how Abraham buys a field in a cave for a burial site. Genesis forty-nine thirty-one says, "...there they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah." There they buried Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, and Jacob. Jacob was also buried there by his sons um, in verse 33 of Genesis 49. So Isaac and Jacob uh, and their wives, Rebekah, big names here, they were all buried in the same place uh, at the side or the bosom of Father Abraham. So the point is that this is where the dead of God's people go. God's people. God's people go to Abraham's side in death. But not people who are not God's people. So, since Jesus could have very easily have said heaven here, but instead he uses Abraham's side, Jesus is saying that Lazarus, the man without outward wealth, money, or status, in fact, a poor beggar, Lazarus is the one who is or was God's people Abraham's people buried at Abraham's side whereas the rich man with all of his material blessings actually he is the one we read about in Hades by contrast which is not where Abraham is the rich man was not even though by all outward appearances he seemed like he would be God's people and this is exactly Jesus' point so I want to ask some questions here I ask some questions have you ever noticed something about our Christianity here in America have you ever noticed that it seems like a lot of times many folks calling themselves Christians um, we sort of have this problem where it's hard to distinguish people who call themselves Christians from everybody else this is a sad thing It's almost as if the sacrifice of Christ is absolutely meaningless or that Christianity is simply about, you know, believing something in my head but not really acting in a certain way, you know, differently in the world. Think about Jesus' words, if you love me, you will do what I command. Well, like all of the Bible, and including Moses and the prophets, as Father Abraham says here, we can easily see that Being a Christian, in fact, um, does. It does mean that, you know, we're supposed to live our lives in a very different way than the rest of the world. So we can see in this parable that the rich man here is actually wishing this very thing. He is wishing that he did so uh, in his life. So continuing in the parable, it ends by the rich man wanting to warn his five brothers of what has happened to him. Verse 28. Essentially, the rich man wants to warn his brothers that if only he would have helped the beggar Lazarus during his own lifetime, essentially, he would not be suffering. In other words, his helping and serving others for God um, would have worked through God for the salvation of even other people, like his brothers. Jesus said, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's in Matthew 5. This parable is telling us the same thing, that living our lives today, sort of what I was getting at, in a manner where we just experience an unending succession of delight, of comfort, and of luxury, this is not the kind of life of the kingdom of God. And there will be eternal consequences. Eternal consequences. Uh, Kind of a scary two-word phrase there, but I don't talk about eternal consequences lightly, and the Bible doesn't say these sorts of things about eternity just to scare anybody either. It's not about scaring people. It's actually about simply the truth of the matter. It's good news. The good news is that what we do right now Uh, has eternal significance. This is a a very good thing. Uh, You know, what we do has an effect on everyone we touch, be it our family, our friends, uh, our neighbors, people we randomly come into contact with. All this has eternal significance. Life is not meaningless. This is good news. And what we do even has a sort of ripple effect, which eventually touches more and more people. This is society. Our actions really do matter. It, you know, Ripple effect. We, we touch people that we normally wouldn't come into contact with. And I want to give a real-life example of this. You can actually see this parable and this concept that I'm talking about. You can see what the parable is revealing, I want to say, in Kansas City. Kansas City. Um, if you ever find yourself driving around Kansas City, Kansas, Kansas City Mo. Downtown, Kansas City Mo. area, I'm thinking about the Westport area in particular, Um, you can see this very parable or this concept in action. Like I said, one can see house after house inside gates with beautiful architecture, well-kept lawns. One of my friends likes to drive around that area and just admire the architecture. And it really is beautiful architecture. But just a few minutes, the other direction, you know hop on some parts of the Paseo, or hop on Troost Avenue, you will see house after house, broken down, dilapidated, and people who genuinely and truly need help. Now, I'm not trying to get in trouble here, but these are not fakers. There are people born into poverty, um, clearly and obviously, many, including those born into poverty, are not responsible for that poverty. Um, In this parable, we can see that the great wealth of the rich man exists right next to the poor beggar Lazarus. They're within less than five minutes of each other. And yet, look what happens eternally. Eternal consequences. It's the same thing in Kansas City. We have great riches, uh, and we have genuine poverty side by side. If the rich man in our parable suffers... Because he did nothing to fix this problem here on earth to help Lazarus, for example. I have to ask myself, and I want to ask everyone this morning. It's the question of the parable, really. Am I doing, or are we doing, anything to fix this problem? You know, and I'm not talking about salvation by works. Neither is the parable. But here's the deal. I live in America I live in a rich western country, just like the rich man in the parable. But what am I doing for the majority of the world, even those right next to me, who live in desolation, who live in poverty right next door? You know, couldn't I be doing something more? And isn't it a well-known fact that God commands me to do more? These are tough questions. I want to come to a close this morning, and I want the message to be a wake-up call for all of us. That's what the gospel is good at. The gospel, and I myself, am not talking about guilt-tripping anybody into doing anything. And like I said, neither is the Bible. It's not about a guilt trip. Uh, the Bible and this parable are also not trying to scare us into anything, and it's not trying to sort of make us obey in a compulsory manner compulsory obedience the gospel is called the good news it's not bad news the good news is that god's word is telling us that the kingdom of god is real jesus is telling us that what we do concretely matters in this life that life is not meaningless and this is very important why is this because everything is sacred this is something we forget everything is sacred and valuable Eternally. Eternal consequences. Eternal significance. When everything has eternal significance in our lives, we treasure and we value every member of society. Every person whom God has created in the image of God. And God said, it is good. This is, in fact, the radical reversal that the darkness cannot comprehend. God's good work. So I want us all to... Go out today and go out this week and for the rest of our lives, you know, may we be transformed by the truth of God's word, the spirit in us, Moses and the prophets and the parable of Jesus so that what I do matters and that I do things. I really do things, you know, not compulsory, but the spirit uh, filling our hearts with compassion Also, I want to make material blessing the key to my life. The obsession with material things. Material blessing can be very deceptive. Instead, let us all fix our eyes on Jesus, as the Word says. Which means doing things for the Gospel, so that we can actually go and make an eternal difference. Not only God working in our own lives, but also in the lives of others. People who need it the most, especially. And yes, we can say that. There are people who are suffering daily. We're all in need of a Savior, but man, look at the parable. So why don't we say a word of prayer this morning.